Wow, what an atmosphere to be in. Isn't this just a, You go all week long in an atmosphere of the world, then you come to church on Sunday, time to take a bath, isn't it? It's washed the world off. And uh, I, I feel that way this morning. I want to, uh, it may seem like a strange compliment, but I, I'm in a different church virtually every Sunday. I go to church every Sunday. There's a few exceptions. Uh, all week long, I'm with military or in a public school, which my uh, public school tours kick off in a couple of weeks in Ohio. And this may seem like a, an odd compliment, but David, whenever I travel and I go to churches and they use the overheads like here, they, the guy running overhead or the lady, whoever, they never keep up with the music. And it just ticks me off something fierce. I go to church and get mad at the guy running the overhead. That by the time the second verse is sung, then they put it up on the screen. You were right on target every time. <laughs> so first things first, right? And uh, if you're going to France, don't take the train. Uh, if you saw the news this week, if you're going to take the train, make sure the U.S. Army and Air Force is on board with you. Uh, Pastor, thank you for the opportunity to be here and your lovely wife. Uh, the worship was beautiful. The, uh, I've enjoyed everything, and just to get to come here means so much to me. Jeannie and Charlie are here. Uh, Charlie helped me up with Pastor a moment ago. I, the lights make where I can't see you very well. Anyway wherever you are, right down here, there you are, right here, and uh, thank you guys for being here today, I sure love you, they're part of our team and have been for decades, we've been uh, not only best friends, but uh, partners in ministry on more times than I can count, and our motorcycle riding buddies, uh, For the, I did something for the first time this week, you mind if I visit a moment, I hope you don't mind, I, I, I'd rather visit a minute first than but for the first time, I've been through the Rocky Mountain National Park about eight times, I bet. For the first time, I did it in a car yesterday. Every time it's been on a motorcycle. And uh, right now, I'm recovering from uh, surgery. And you can see, and it's a little embarrassing. Um, I have this brace now that my leg doesn't work. It's kind of about half paralyzed. And so I have to help it. And the braces on the outside, and I realized they ran out of room on the inside to put any more steel, so now they started on the outside. <laughs> and pretty soon I'll be the $7 million man. And I set off all the alarms at airports before I even get into the main terminal. But I'm just glad to be alive. I feel great. I feel wonderful. The Estes Park is one of God's great places on earth. This is one of the most beautiful places in the world. I'm so, I'm so privileged to get to be here and speak to all of you wonderful folks today. Uh, someone asked, I, I did a focus on the family uh, taping Friday, I think it was, wasn't it, baby, Friday? Or, anyway, a couple of days ago. And it's going to air on uh, Veterans Day. Well, I'm also taping for Trinity Broadcasting a special that's going to air the same day, so I'll be kind of scattered across the country. People won't know where I am. I'm going to be at home watching somebody else on TV. 
But they asked me, they said, how old are you? I said, well, I'm 68 going on 40. 40 is the new 20, so I'm 19. <laughs> uh, the average age of the young warriors that are defending our right to worship in this room today. Uh, God bless our troops and keep them safe. Uh, my heart is with them today. There's a gentleman here that's a Vietnam veteran, and I was very privileged to meet him when I came in. And uh, there is a thing he's involved in, and it's called the honor flight. And I am so proud of this man for being part of an effort to show honor. If we don't show honor, why would any young man or woman be willing to serve in the military that would discredit, dishonor, in any way, not show the respect to our troops that needs to be shown. So to this fellow Vietnam veteran here today, first of all, welcome home to you, sir. If nobody's told you in the last 40 years, you heard it today. Welcome home. Let's welcome home all of our Vietnam veterans in this room. God bless them. And I'm, I'm very happy he's here today. Any veteran that has served, any person in this room presently serving, whether it's in the reserves, the guard, whatever, thank you for your service and wearing that uniform. On 9-11, I tried to volunteer again. At that time, I weighed 365 pounds, and they said, sure, but you have to go to Dallas Tent and Awning to have a uniform built. <laughs> so they said no, but two weeks later, I got an invitation by Department of Defense to become a defense contractor. What is a defense contractor? And the mindset goes immediately to probably the uh, military industrial complex of our nation. No, not in that respect. I, I'm not a contractor. I couldn't build a BB gun, much less something they need in a battlefield. So what kind of contractor am I? I am a contractor in a program for the Department of Defense. It's called the Comprehensive Soldier Fitness Program. In it are five pillars. They include marital, social, physical, uh, one other one that slips in my mind, and mine. My pillar is the spiritual pillar. And it is a program in the Department of Defense that is sponsored by taxpayers' money that we need to allow those who want to have a spiritual a spiritual strengthening, a spiritual guidepost in their life that it is provided for them by the military to have a place to go. And it can, they can be Buddhist, they can be Muslim, they can be, uh, you name it. Shocker of shockers, they can even be Christians. I didn't know Christians could be anything except martyred in most of the world now besides here. And I'm, I'm telling you, God bless our military for allowing for a spiritual pillar. And I have been chosen to do that for the last uh, 10 years. So I'm a spiritual coach in a comprehensive soldier fitness program. Thank you for your tax dollars. Keep those cards and letters coming in. <laughs> we appreciate that. Now, while I may contract personally, I do not contract our ministry I do not contract our program for our wounded heroes called Operation Warrior Reconnect. We are not and have not and will not be part of federal funding or 
uh, Wounded Warrior Project. We're, we have nothing to do with any of those, or those sponsorships, potentially. We stand alone as a faith-based ministry to our troops. And I have been on six tours into Iraq and to Afghanistan and just got back from Afghanistan recently and headed back again to take our pro program that we have here in America. We're taking it to Afghanistan for the Afghan National Army who are asking us to do with their troops what we do with our troops. It is a stunning first time ever opportunity and I can't help but just thank God and thank you for rejoicing with me. With that said, there's so much I want to share, and I don't want to keep you here till 12 because midnight's late to be getting out of Sunday service. <laughs> so if it won't offend anybody, I will use my larger than my last phone to read my text from. So if you have your iPhones, join me, and I'd like to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And I'm going to read verse 7 and 8, and then I'm going to just share from my heart this morning with the great folks here at Estes Park. If you don't read along, it's simple enough to remember, and uh, they'll have this, I understand, streaming. So there's ways for you to uh, be part of the memorization of Scripture. I use the King James Version because that's what I grew up with. It, it's not the best or whatever. I, I, it's just what I grew up with. And so I'm more comfortable with. But we have, if you didn't remember, it's 2 Corinthians chapter 7, uh, pardon me, chapter 4, verse 7. But we have this treasure. Say treasure. treasure. So I know you heard it. And if you're reading along, you saw it. And then you spoke it. The three most profound ways to put something into STM, it's called short-term memory. And then, if you repeat it again, it's most likely put into LTM, the long-term memory. And I had to memorize this, these scriptures before I went to school every morning when I was a kid. My mother was invalid. My dad would fix breakfast, swap me on the rear end as I go off to school, quoting a verse that I had to learn before I got to go to school. These are some of those verses. They've been with me all of my life. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels. What is earthen? I heard about the atheist that wanted to compete with God about his intelligence. And he said to God, he said, well, I can make man too. And God said, really? He said, absolutely, I can make man. And God said, well, do it. He said, well, okay. So he knelt down, started scooping together some dirt. And God said, oh, no, no, no. Wait a minute. You have to get your own dirt. Earthen vessels. What, what comes to your mind about an earthen vessel? Dirt. We came from the dust of the earth. We returned to the dust of the earth. Ashes to ashes. I, I don't know. I don't know if that has something to do with cremation. Uh, most of the Christian world do not cremate, but I don't know that I have a position I would try to take in and debate on it. I think I may do it because I've been burned already. I get a 50% discount, you know. Uh, <laughs> that's sick. <laughs> I worry about going to heaven and Jesus says, well done, thou good and faithful servant. I want to be medium well or rare. 
I bet you won't forget this scripture. <laughs> but we have this treasure in earthen vessels. Well, what is the treasure in the earthen vessel? In the earthen vessel. vessel That the excellency of the power. So we're talking about power in an earthen vessel. But there's excellency of power, which tends to let us believe there's unexcellency of power. Uh, Peter said, I stir up your pure mind by way of remembrance. Your pure mind. So apparently we have the ability to have an impure mind. Boy, I don't have to tell anybody that, do I? That's why we have all these email accounts that people have. And, and this actually something thing on television. And now they kind of find out all these hundreds of thousands of people of, of people who wanted to have extramarital affairs, it got hacked. And now all their names are out there. Be sure your sins will find you out. Not only your sins, but your wife will too, Bubba. I can tell you right now, God tells Jesus and women everything. <laughs> so don't forget that when you start thinking about, yeah, well, enough said there. I'm going to get to where I want to go here in just a second. <clears throat> that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. So it tells me that there's two forms of power. Which kind of power do you think is going to come through for us in verse 8? We're troubled on every side, but not distressed. Do you ever get troubled? Well, I've been troubled a few times. Even Jesus said, now is my soul troubled. You can have a troubled soul. My soul many times is troubled, and it may be troubled many times in, in a day. I, I may get all kinds of bad news over a 24-hour period, and my soul is troubled. Sometimes it affects your body, and you actually will weep, or you'll react physically with stress to your heart and other organs of the body. Think about what I'm saying. We're troubled on every side, yet not distressed. I don't worry about stress until it turns to distress. And distress is not good. Stress is all right. And you say, how can you say that? Well, they don't even build a bridge without stress. Those giant beams you see pulled by big trucks to bridges and overpasses, there's a cable that runs through it that's stretched to incredible stress, major tension. Then they pour the concrete around it. Then they release the cable, and that cable will cause that concrete to bow up. And when they set it in a pre-designated place and they pour all the concrete on it, that stress then is what bows to the weight of the concrete and it makes a level runway instead of, or a level bridge instead of hump, hump. You've seen some that just lets you ride like you're on a bridge. If you didn't have that stress... You couldn't go over that bridge because if they didn't put that cable under stress, that would break. You can break under distress. Stress is okay. I hope I'm making my point. If you don't understand yet, just stay with me for another minute because it's going to make some serious sense. We are perplexed but not in despair. What does perplexed mean? You know what the definition of that is for me? No visible way out. No visible way out. You are in trouble and there's no visible way out, but for some reason and the world can't figure it out, you're cool with it. You're okay because you know in whom you have believed and you are persuaded that he is able 
to keep that which I, we, have committed unto him against that day. So with that, even though I'm perplexed at times and I don't see any way out, I'm still humming a tune. I'm still a happy camper. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Cast down, but not destroyed. And I think that last one is where I want to start. He said, you've been talking this long and you had not even started yet. <laughs> Fear not. My scripture reading is longer than my message. I don't know. I may change that today just to show you that I can. <laughs> Cast down, but not destroyed. You're looking at a very broken body. You truly are. I have steel that runs from the sole of my feet to my head. Someone said, when that hand grenade exploded in Vietnam, what was the first thing through your mind? I said, shrapnel. <laughs> then I thought, oh my, what just happened? Let me tell you a story this morning, can I? I want to tell you a personal story. I could tell you the story of Peter, James, John. I could tell you a lot of other people's stories. But the story that's going to mean the most to you is the story that means the most to me. My emotion, my, my soul, through its trouble, perplexity, and even though I was cast down, there is something I'm going to tell you today that I hope you can eke out of my personal experience and apply to your personal experience, and you can say, well, it worked for Dave, it'll work for me, because God is no respecter of persons. And what God has done in my life, he's more than able to do in your life. And I am willing to be the illustration of my own message. So I'm going to take you back a few moments. Remember when I talked about that invalid mother? I became suicidal at nine years old because I accidentally overheard a conversation in a bedroom with a room filled with medical equipment for a mother that was dying because I was born. If I had not been born, she would have lived to be a normal length of time life. But when I came along, it so broke her body that she never recovered and ended up in a curled up little fetal position in a nursing home for years and years and years. And as a young boy, I passed the door when my father said to my mother, reminding her that God is not punishing her. God is not evil. God does not do bad things to us. And he just simply reminded her and in earshot of a little boy passing a door not totally closed, I heard him say, ever since Davy Boy was born, this condition has come upon you. Well, Davy Boy was only nine. Nine-year-old boys don't figure things out. And I thought, wow, it's my fault. If I kill myself, she'll get better. And I started trying to think of ways to kill myself at nine years old. But the older I got, the more I started to figure out this thing about God, that God is love, and he doesn't hurt us, and he doesn't make us sick. God doesn't punish us with evil. That's just not the God I serve. We punish ourselves with evil. We smoke ourselves, drink ourselves, text ourselves to death, driving and texting. We do all kinds of bad stuff to ourselves and then blame God. Well, I mean, God, don't ask that. What if he answered you? <laughs> well, I don't know, George, it's just something about you I don't like. <laughs> Poof. 
You'd be a crispy critter like Dave Reaver, or you drink your milk or you'll look just like him. I wonder how many mothers have done that to their kid. God doesn't do evil. But it took me a while to figure that out. And that's at the age of 16, I gave my heart to Christ. And I made a personal decision, not to ride on my parents' coattail, but I felt the need to make a personal decision. It was the same year I fell in love with that woman sitting right over there. I was 16 years old when I asked her to marry me. She was 13. She slapped me. She said, I'm only 13. I said, well, you got the body of a 14-year-old. She slapped me again. I used the word body. That's TMI, too much information. She said, but if you love me, you'll wait for me. I said, okay, I'll pick you up at 10. I can wait. But I knew what she meant. I waited. And we were both virgin when we married. Isn't that something to go tell the world? Kids in public schools give me standing ovations for that statement. Kids in public schools are begging for somebody to stand for something instead of fall for everything that comes along. And that's why I'm still called into public schools. Because I tell it the way I see it and what worked for me. And it works for a lot of people. To make that decision for Christ as a 16-year-old boy would guide my life to the age of 19 now. <laughs> if you didn't catch that a while ago, that doesn't make sense. But at 68 years old, it still works. I have no regrets. And boy, that's a big statement. And you're looking at a guy that... Um, inadvertently scares a lot of people. Uh, I never intended to look disfigured. I always wanted to look my best. I still try. And I notice I'm the only one wearing a tie this morning, I think. <laughs> Boy, if I'd known that, I'd have peeled this thing off. And uh, I, actually, I made a decision. I wanted to look my best. And my best is most people's worst. Because at the age of 16, I made a decision that wherever I would be in my life, Jesus would be there with me. And he would keep me from where he did not want me. And I know that God did not do this to me. He did not blow my face off, rip my chest open, set my body on fire at 50% third degree. God didn't do this to me. People do to people what God never thought of. We teach the devil most of what he knows. He looks at us and says, whoa, I never thought of that. That's a good idea. Because the Bible says the heart of man is deceitfully wicked above all things. Who can know it? The invention of our mind to do evil is beyond our own comprehension. Stunning. That's why we need Jesus. And so at 16, I made that decision. She graduated from high school. We got married. And I got a little message from the Selective Service Board in my in my mailbox at the student union building where I was going through seminary <clears throat> and it said for me to go take a physical I was being inducted in the army that was not part of what I thought was God's plan for my life I wrote back and told them I felt fine and I appreciated their inquiry into my health <laughs> but they insisted I take that physical so I did and it was the only exam I passed that whole semester I was working 70 hours a week trying to carry 21 hours of college. There's no way anybody can do that and have a passing grade. Well, it was passing. And I remember when I went in, I joined the Navy because I didn't want the Army to draft me because they might hurt me. 
<laughs> you ever get up one morning and have a bad year? I got up that morning, went down and joined the Navy, and immediately was selected to have the opportunity to serve in the Special Warfare Command, the SWIC, they call it, of the U.S. Navy Special Forces. I was trained by Navy SEALs. I was trained beside people that were called the, the uh, Special Dive Vehicle Teams, and I was a brown water black beret. They're not called that today. They changed that now. It's called the Special Dive Vehicle Teams and the Special Boat Teams and the Navy SEALs. So there's three divisions of the Special Forces of the U.S. Navy. I was in the Brownwater Black Beret, or is now called the Special Boat Teams. We were in two movies. One was called Apocalypse Now, and the other recently called Acts of Valor. And if you remember the little very fast boats with very big guns, that's what I got to do. And I really loved the boats. I enjoyed my tour of duty, serving my country, right up to the last three days. I took two injuries in three days. One minor compared to the second, and the second would be the end of my military career. I'll get to that in a moment. So what I'm telling you is, here I am, a preacher's kid, Raised in a home of peace and love with never a black eye. I've never been backhanded. I've never been slapped. Although the belt in our bathroom said I need thee every hour on it. My dad would apply that belt to the seat of education on a few occasions. But I grew up learning there's consequences to bad behavior and good behavior. And I found out if I do good, I don't get that bad consequence. And some of you say, well, your dad's a terrible man. Well, that's another debate for another time. But I loved my dad more than I'll ever be able to tell you because he taught me consequences. And to this day, I still revere my dad as the greatest hero I've ever known, save only Jesus Christ. My dad became my hero, and for many reasons, but one of the priorities was his love he showed to me, but that's even second to the love he showed to my mom. Even in her invalid condition, he would roll her to the breakfast table push the hair aside from off her shoulder. He'd bend down, kiss the back of her neck, and he would whisper loud enough for all three of us kids to hear when he would say, Lois, darling, I love you. And it never could have meant more than after all that time as a little boy growing up to a mother that couldn't even fix her breakfast to see the adoration he had for her, the love he showed and that day in the ante room next to the big auditorium and the casket sitting in front of the podium, there, as I sat, I watched a man wearing a three-piece suit that was out of style with a gold watch chain where the gold had rubbed off and the chrome was shining through, but it was that woman's favorite suit and watch chain that he ever wore. And he walked up to her remains pushed aside the hair that was sprawled on her shoulders and whispered loud enough for all of us to hear when he said, Lois, darling, I love you. And I dare say I'm sitting in a room full of people who understand exactly what I just told you. I'm on 48 years with that girl. 
She's 20. <laughs> and until death do us part, I love her. And please pardon the watery eyes. I'm allergic to the carpet here at the school. <laughs> so when I kissed her goodbye to go to a place called Vietnam that I didn't know anything about, I can still taste the salt of her tears on my lips with even the slightest effort of imagination and memory. And I remember as I walked away, man's man, hurrah, I didn't have a tear in my eye. I was standing strong five steps away. And she called my name with the term of endearment instead of David, which when she calls me David, I just go upstairs to the corner I know she's going to send me to. But she said, Davy, and I froze in my tracks, and before I could turn around, tears crashed over the dam of all my resistance, ran down my cheek, and I looked at her with anger at myself, and I said, what? And she asked me a question that still haunts me to this day. And every tour I take with the Department of Defense into the war zones of this planet to be with our troops to encourage she asked me the same question. Are you coming back? It's the only way I can identify with a bunch of disciples that saw their loved hero, the beloved man of their lives who was wounded for our transgression. Think about it. And then when they took his life, they put him in a tomb. I wonder if they didn't feel the same way as they saw him ascend into heaven and they said, are you coming back? Well, he said, yes. And I did too. I said, I'll be back without a scar. Why did I put that scar thing in there? I could have just said, I'll be Bach and I could be governor of California. I could make movies and be rich. But I believe it was the first time God gave me my first inkling of an idea that I would not come home the man that I was leaving. She would not see her handsome young prince come home. The handsome young prince. The frog came home. I laughingly tell people I knew it was a frog because I almost croaked. <laughs> you got to make something light out of it. So I kissed her goodbye and went to war. I was on the Vamcote River of the Vamco River, which was a tributary of the Mekong and flowed into the Mekong Delta. I served, as I said, on a riverboat made of fiberglass, by the way. How's that for armor? You shoot a pistol through it. Our armor was our speed. They seldom could hit us when we were at top speed. So we really ran the boats fast a lot. Then I remember that first day on the river, how vulnerable I felt no matter how much training I had had. And before the second week was out, we'd gone through our first firefight, my first body count, and my first time to wonder, God, how did I get here? What am I doing here? Do I belong here? You know, when you're in the middle of perplexity, and some of you sitting in this room right now may be dead center in the middle of the biggest storm of your life, now you don't see it. But one day as you go down this long path of life, you'll look back at the storm you're in 
And you'll see the fingerprints of God all over it because he delivered you from evil. God is faithful. But we so seldom see that faithfulness when we're in the middle of hurt. We're in the middle of so much pain. I, I said to two of my dear friends, Jeannie and Charlie, as we sat at lunch or at dinner, whatever it was the other night, and uh, I made this statement. I said, I'd rather go through 10 Vietnams than one divorce. Because it's easier for me to take physical pain than emotional pain. And for all of you who've been through divorce, I want to say something to you. I'll just start with the most important statement of my statement to you. You're my hero. You're my hero. And you say, why? We went through divorce. Oh, not because you went through divorce. But having gone through that kind of emotional horror, when the love of your life is lost, and everything you desired is now so often turned to hatred, even though it's called a reconciled separation through divorce or whatever you want to call it. I'm just going to say it. You're in the house of God today. This no longer is a school auditorium. This is the house of God. And you're here because you figured it out. Sometimes human relationships fall apart. But Jesus said, I will never divorce you. I will never leave you. And he has kept his word. And you let him. So you're my hero because you didn't do that why me God thing. And you got on with your life. And you let Jesus be the guidepost. And you're marching in step with the family of God. So I tell you if you've been through divorce Today, I love you. Now, it means I love you in sign language, but my thumb got blown off, so I speak sign language with a lisp. <laughs> it means I love you. I willy, willy do. <laughs> I really do love you. Because you're the emotional of what my physical is. Because there's only two places you can bear scars, on the outside like me or on the inside like many of you. But there's three things about scars you should know. It's evidence of... Well, it's evidence you got hurt. Nobody can deny that. You look at this old face of mine and you say, that man got hurt. Yes, I did. But I got over it. So a scar is evidence I got over it. What is a scar? It's a wound that quit bleeding. It healed, but it left its mark. And it is vital to part three because the third thing about a scar, it's evidence of empathy. And when you say to somebody, I know how you feel, you better have a scar to prove it. That's why I don't say to divorcees, I know how you feel. But I say to burn survivors, I know how you feel. And they have a strange way of believing me. They look at this face and say, yes, you do. And I can minister to them like nobody else, maybe. But for those of you that have been through these terrible pains of life, whether it's divorce or whatever, and you can list a thousand ways to be hurt, but your evidence is of one way to be healed. Oh, I call you my hero because you take that past and you bring it to the present and you show somebody who's going down your road of history. It's their road of present and you're both road of deliverance. Jesus is still the answer. Give it up for the Prince of Peace in the house today. He's still the answer. Thank God. How did it happen? Well, war is war, and I'll tell you, it's not a pretty picture. 
I told you I was injured twice in three days. The first injury was at the same place of the second. The first injury was because we had been set up. We were in an ambush, and the enemy got a lucky shot off, and I had a small shrapnel injury. I was medevac. They thought I would lose my right eye. They thought that they would not be able to salvage it, but they were able. It was a minor injury after all, and I was put back on the river. I was put back on the river and sent back to the very place I was injured the first time because I had to do an intelligence report, and I think it's stupid to be that intelligent. <laughs> Why go back? Well, you go back to get an estimate of spent brass. You get an idea of two things in spent brass. The number of weapons, the number of weapons firing at you, how many weapons and how much ammunition spent. And then you get an idea of the number of people that were involved in the attack against you because numbers really matter when it comes to war. I got back to that same spot. It's called the parrot's beak. You can find it on the map where the Cambodian border makes, it looks like a parrot's beak pointing at Saigon, the capital of then South Vietnam. I felt something was wrong. You develop a sixth sense. Sometimes it comes early, sometimes it comes late in war. But the more involved you are in actual combat, the more you learn to depend on feelings of things. I felt like something was wrong and I was right. They were there. So I decided that I would throw a white phosphorus hand grenade and burn down the high brush. It would detonate booby traps, put up smoke, and give me some cover to get up on the riverbank and go down in the what Saddam Hussein was captured in called a spider hole. Just a bunker if you want to, if you please. <clears throat> I pull the pin on a white phosphorus grenade that burns at 5,000 degrees Fahrenheit. That's hot. Twice the heat necessary to melt the engine out of your car. But it would detonate booby traps. It would burn trip wires. It would burn down brush. It was exactly what I needed. But it had a kill radius of certainty of at least 60 feet. I pulled back and I had it in my right hand. What I didn't know was that I was in the crosshairs of a sniper. And he took his best shot, I assume, at my head. And he missed. But he hit my hand. And through my thumb and index finger, traversed my future. A 7.62 bullet of an AK-47. I thought I was hit by a rocket-propelled grenade. I honestly thought I was hit by a B-40 anti-tank rocket. All I know was in one second, that's how long it takes to change your life. In one second, my world was forever changed. My eternity was changed. Not my destination but my destiny. Destination is where you're going. Destiny is how you go about getting there. And that day, to survive that moment, I knew God had a plan for my life. But I have to tell you, I didn't suddenly have that revelation. As I looked back, as I said to you earlier, I started seeing fingerprints that were of a divine hand of God. I realized he didn't do it. But he's the master of taking disaster and changing tragedies into triumph. And that day on the bank of the river, I looked down and my face was blown off. It was on my boots. I looked closer and I could see my heart beating. My back was on fire, skin dripping off my arms. I was pumping blood out of an open artery. And the very thing that was consuming my flesh 
carterized the artery, sealed it off, and saved me from hemorrhaging and bleeding out, bleeding to death. It is the most bizarre experience I think a guy can go through. I'm six, six inches, not 60 feet. I'm six inches from ground zero, we'll call it, for fun. It blew right here. And yes, it took my face, except for this eye and this cheek, everything else from there down to my waist. I was in a gun tub protected from my waist down. Everything above that, save this quadrant, or actually less than a quadrant, was surrendered to the flames. What's really amazing is that I never passed out. I was never unconscious, and I know everything that happened. I did not have a single pain in my body. I felt nothing for a few moments. And then I got sent to the corner. <laughs> when it came, the pain of that fire is not explicable. I have no means to tell you. And I let that sleeping dog lie because God has removed the memory of the pain only to remember that I have never felt anything like it or close to it in my life since. When the grenade exploded, it took my hair, my ear, my thumb, tips of these finger, so I have no fingerprints there. These three fingers and thumb were hanging by, tis, uh, hanging by tendons, and I was shooting the blood out of the artery, as I mentioned, but one finger remained. These don't work, but they make a good mic stand, and God left me a preaching finger. <laughs> Duh. What else does a traveling preacher need? You know? I went blind in my eye and deaf in my ear for obvious reasons. But two years and two months later, I got my hearing back and my vision back. And I'm sitting here looking at you through both eyes, hearing you with both ears. The difference is, while I lost my hair, I got it back. I bought it. <laughs> There's a guy in China that's bald today because it was made in China. <laughs> I don't mind the hairpiece. I just hate chasing it across parking lots <laughs> on windy days. It was blown off in Vietnam and it was blown off in South Carolina the other day in a high wind. A dog brought it back. Stinking mutt. How do you know it was mine? I mean, that's a thought. My ear fell off when I was speaking in Jamaica one time. It being artificial, it was not the, this is a new super ear model. It snaps on. It sticks on good. But then it was a glue-on model, and it was so hot in Jamaica, and I was sweating. <laughs> My ear fell off, and I didn't know what happened. I just saw thousands of people do this. <laughs> they covered their mouth. Their eyes were big. They're sucking air like a hoover, and they're about to die without grape Kool-Aid. <laughs> so I'm scrambling, and I, I'm Think, well, I thought it was my fly was down or something. It wasn't. I checked. It was good. I looked around, and there's my ear laying on my shoulder. I stuck it back on. I thought, okay, that's out of the way. It got worse. They thought it was a miracle, and they all got saved. <laughs> I couldn't tell them it was a phony ear. They would have said, you're a phony preacher. They would have stoned me, you know. Pastor didn't want me coming here and telling you I went to Jamaica and got stoned. You can go to Colorado and do that. Hold <laughs> on. Anyway, I won't go down that road. Well, here's the rest of the story because that is the apex of the physical distress. The physical stress. Because 
within a very short period of time, I began to realize God had a plan for my life and I was not going to die from that injury. Very short period of time. I was still on fire. The fire was not out yet. In fact, two weeks after I was injured, they opened me up to do surgery and I burst into flames on the operating table. Because ask any military guy in this room, and you'll see I'm not lying. Phosphorus only requires oxygen to spontaneously combust. You don't have to light it. No fuse necessary. So when that bullet hit that grenade and it blasted that stuff inside of me, when they opened me up, oxygen hit what was not yet exposed to air. It went in and peeled like a banana peel, the outer layer, but the inside core of that phosphorus was never exposed until they cut me open. And they nicknamed me Hot Stuff. <laughs> I'm the only guy in the room that can truly say I have a smoking hot body. <laughs> that didn't go very well. I won't do that one again. I just thought of that, and that would be the last time. <laughs> so that day on the bank of a river, I swam across the water. I jumped off the boat in the water. I swam across. My skin was everywhere. I tell everybody I was beside myself. I needed to pull myself together. <laughs> that is sick. Junior high kids love it when I tell them that one. They like it when you're gross. And I crawled up on that river bank, and I'm still burning because phosphorus burns in a vacuum. You cannot extinguish it. It has to burn itself out. So I'm still on fire on the bank of the river. I fell over backwards, and everyone thought I died. A medic evacuation helicopter, better known as a dust-off, came in. They rolled me onto a stretcher. They think I'm dead. They get me on the stretcher. They're running for the helicopter. I set the stretcher on fire. It ripped open. I fell through my head. You ever have one of those days? <laughs> Nothing works out right. I'm on the ground again. They rolled me up in wet blankets out of that river that's more of a sewer than a river. I should have died of every disease known to man at least known to Vietnamese. They rolled me up in that blanket, put me on another stretcher. Now the burning is encased in wet blankets. It is being suppressed but not, not put out. They slid me in the helicopter and away we go and the medic's filling out my death report because that's the medical track. The command track who, when put in the, air, in the helicopter, the command track, the last thing they saw and heard was I was pronounced dead. So I was KIA. And a guy tried to sell me a car the other day, spelled KIA. <clears throat> Do not buy that car. Every time you look at that steering column, it's going to say, you're going to die today in this car. Killed in auto. I'm kidding. Kia's a great car. They're very beautiful. I'm saying that so you and I don't get sued, Pastor. In the helicopter, the first sign of life came to whenever I let out a yell, which was nothing more than a squeak. Most of, the, most of my air went through a hole that went beneath my larynx, but above my solar plexus, I guess it's called. But right there, a piece of phosphorus burned through. And I said, medic, and he almost jumped out of that helicopter. The pilot lost control. We're dropping like a rock, and I thought, oh, Lord, we're going to crash. I'll be the only survivor. They got me to Saigon and then to Japan. And in Japan, I really stupidly asked for a mirror, and they really stupidly brought it. And with my good eye, I looked up, and I saw what was left. And my brain said what my heart feared the most. 
No teenage girl is going to love a monster and a freak. And for the only time in my life, the earthen vessel, the only time in my life from the age of 16, the earthen vessel was possessed of the excellency of man's power. And it failed me in duress. It failed me under stress. All the adrenaline in the world that you can hope for may get you through a moment, but it's going to take more than adrenaline when the miraculous is required and you need something called the anointing. And I will tell you when the adrenaline's gone, the anointing is just kicking in. Give the Lord a clap offering in his house. The anointing. You say, what does that mean? What is that? I'll just put it through this way. If they say about the American Express card, don't leave home without it, I say about the anointing, don't go out into this world thinking that you're strong enough. We're an earthen vessel. We're easily broken. But I can honestly tell you that until that pot is broken, it cannot be used of God. It was Zen Buddhism of all sources to quote. Confucius accredited with, whether it's true or not, it is a fact of a Chinese proverb that says, no vessel is truly broken, empty rather, until it is broken. No vessel is truly empty until it's broken. That's a little teaser for you to think through. The scriptures say God loves a broken and contrite spirit. You know why? Because when we were made in his likeness, we were not broken. And his likeness was we had to be dependent upon him. But when we were broken, we thought we could be independent from him, from him, run our lives the way we want and still make an eternity in heaven. I don't think so. The most popular song today in America at funerals is, I did it my way. I hope to God Almighty that if I am not in that last trumpet sound, I will have already been received in the arms of God through the death of a saint. But I won't be singing, I did it my way. I want to be singing, I did it his way. That's the only way, folks. You say, oh, Dave, that is so narrow-minded. That is so draconian. That is so immaturish that there's only one way. I didn't say it. Take it up with Jesus. He said, I am the door and there's no way in but me. I didn't do it. Don't blame me. So they sent me to America. Brook Army Medical Center, San Antonio, Texas. I, I was there for one year and two months. Back then, 30% third degree was considered fatal. Nobody lived over 30% third degree. I was close to 50. By the time the skin continued to deteriorate, I, I came very close to 50% loss of my skin, which means I only have 50% donor site left. Which, by the way, they said, we found skin to match your face. It's perfect. Then they told me where they found it. I said, eh. People won't know if I'm coming or going. <laughs> I'm glad you caught that without further explanation. Otherwise, I was going to refer you to consult with pastor for counseling. 
They got me to America, put me in the ICU, and I didn't know what an ICU was. I'd never been in an ICU. Several months later, whenever they let me stand for the first time, they put that little robe on you that doesn't come together in the back. That's why they call it the ICU. <laughs> I saw me too, and I didn't like that. <laughs> I walked backwards. But the fact was, there were 13 of us in there, and to this day, I don't know of a survivor but me. I think I'm the only one that came out alive. And that was expected. They called the ICU among ourselves. We called it death row. They kept us there to not discourage people in the main population so that they wouldn't see us die and think, well, they had no hope. So we got in that little room together and just discouraged each other to death. And I was the last one. I will be the 13th obituary. And I wonder what it will say. I wonder. That first day they let visitors come in and the guy in the bed next to mine was 100% third degree and he only lived long enough with the ambition to see his wife. Love kept him alive until she walked in, took off her wedding ring, threw it on the bed and said, you're embarrassing. I couldn't walk down the street with you. And she walked out. He was the first of the baker's dozen to die. And in the round robin of visitation, I'm the next guy. And I start thinking in panic. I say, oh God, please, please. What, what two do I pull? What do I do? Because in Japan, I had decided to kill myself, and I pulled a tube to do it. I didn't have a gun. <laughs> I got hungry. It was lunch. I pulled the wrong tube. So I'm in America thinking, which tube? She was in my room before, in, in that ICU before I knew what happened. And there's a teenage girl standing there, and I'm trying to think of ways to kill myself. I don't want her to take home a freak and a monster. She walked up to my bed, bent down, kissed what was left of my face, looked me in my good eye, and she said, I just want you to know, I love you. Welcome home, Davy." And when she says, Davy, <laughs> I said, baby, I'm sorry. She said, why? I said, I can't ever look good for you again. She said, you never were good looking. <laughs> That's when I figured it out, guys. Women don't judge us by our looks like we judge women. Let me tell you something. A woman has a gift of discernment. And while I made a little fun of it at the beginning, it's a whole lot more serious than it is funny. Because she has that intuitive ability to know what's in the book and not be deceived by the cover. And I'm glad. She stayed with me. I've wondered, but I've never known if she ever packed a bag secretly to go. But somehow I don't think so. It doesn't last 48 years without it being for real. And I love her. Thank you, Pastor. Yeah, thank you. That'll work. I'll try not to knock it off again. <laughs> so I left the hospital after a year and two months. Suitcase in one hand, a sweetheart in the other. I did really well. And I have people that are evidence to what I'm saying who've been part of our ministry, part of our focus that none should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That, that, that's been the goal of my life. But on 9-11... 
things changed. And from speaking in the greatest venues on this planet, and I'm not exaggerating, I've addressed crowds of over 300,000. It's not bragging, I want to make my point. Suddenly numbers didn't mean anything. What meant to me and meant everything to me was we've just been attacked on our home front. And I could not equate allowing that to happen without becoming involved. So while, as you've already heard, they, don't, they didn't then make uniforms that fit a boy like me, two weeks later I got a call from Langley. And Department of Defense said, we want you to tour all of our military installations throughout the United States. Be a living example of there's hope after war, there's life after injury. I said, let me pray about it. Amen. Okay. That's all I needed was an opportunity. I was made for this. I was made for the job I do. There's nothing I could do on this planet that gives me more joy than living my life out in the presence of and being an example to our wounded warriors to stop this horrible hemorrhaging of one suicide a day every day of our troops. And for the first time since this horrible revelation of suicides every day, one a day, for the first time two months ago, we broke through the wall. It's now less than one a day every day. It is huge to my heart. Thank God. So with that part of the story behind us, I take you to a short conclusion. They asked me ultimately if I would go downrange, which means into the war zone. They sent me into Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, Oman, Qatar, United Arab Emirates, Afghanistan, and ultimately Iraq, and primarily Iraq for many years, working for General Ray Odierno, who just retired, as you know, last week as Chief of Staff of the U.S. Army. I worked for him until his promotion handed me off to his replacement. And I followed in the steps of Joe Anderson, who prosecuted the war in Afghanistan and sent me blackhawking all over both nations of Iraq and Afghanistan and other places. Wherever he sent me, I went to the hell holes to find our teenagers. Our teenagers. Charlie, we were 18 years old fighting in Vietnam. That was our average age. Well, they're really a Got the, you know, got the heads up on us at 19, don't they? How many teenagers do you know? I'm going to tell you, before the next time you want to slap one for not doing what you think they ought to, pause, take a deep breath, and love them. Because you never know which one's going to die for you tomorrow. Let's hold our young people close to the vest because it's close to the heart. Don't ever give up on your kids. Never turn your back on a child that has given you a lot of stuff. It, you're perplexed, but you're going to make it. And if you keep God in the picture, that kid's going to make it. So I, I conclude, and I, I conclude my conclusion. I, I love to conclude. <laughs> I don't know when you normally get out, but I bet it's five minutes ago. But I do want to close with something that's more dear to my heart than I know how to tell you without expressing this moment in my life. And the reason I've shared my life, I've already told you. Because until Jesus is personal to you, how are you going to make it personal to someone else if they don't see first 
rate evidence in your life. So I think we all agree on that. It, it was not long ago that the Department of Defense sent me on a DOD tour that started in, uh, uh, in, at NSA near Washington, D.C., and went all the way to USERPAC, United States Army Pacific Command in Hawaii, which included all of the nations that border the Pacific Ocean under the command of General Brooks, General Four Star, and a wonderful, godly man. And we have many, many godly leaders that are in the crosshairs of an enemy that wants to take them out that are Americans that hate them because they have a love for God. And I tell you, pray for your military leadership. Everybody agrees, say amen. amen. Well, it started out in Dover, Delaware. And I was there at Dover, Delaware Air Force Base and addressed NSA, Fort Meade, and was asked to take a tour of a place that, according to statistics, literally over 90% of you and how it would play out here would probably be similar of a place called the National Mortuary that people don't realize that it's there in Dover, Delaware. And every fallen warrior on the battlefield or in our military service, their remains will go across that autopsy table. And when the colonel asked me, he said, have you ever been to the uh, National Morgue? I said, no, and might I say thank you. <laughs> and he laughed. He said, no, but you know what I mean. I said, sir, I would be honored to take a tour. Well, having never taken one, I didn't know where it would start, where it would finish. I didn't know what it would entail. Well, we went in through the very front entrance, which had a description, some history. It was an amazing and very beautiful and very somber and sobering experience to enter in. But we started at the autopsy room, and I said, I'm not going in there. I said, it's not hocus pocus with me, Colonel. I said, I'm an Old Testament survey a student, and that tabernacle had a place called the Holy of Holies. And only those that were prepared to go in could go in at risk of, and penalty of death. I said, I will not go in that room. I've never been trained for it, and I will not tarnish the valor to be a gawker and to view. He said, there's no one on the table. I don't care. I said, I don't care. You call it a table. I call it an altar. I said, I'm not going in. I said, but tell me, Colonel, is this not the worst place, the most difficult tour of duty you've ever been assigned? Oh, he said, it's difficult, but not here. I said, come, I'll show you. I'll take you there. So we started through the rest of the tour, and we went to a place, a room bigger than this, and it's completely filled with uniforms of all the branches of the military. And my first thought was it was a storeroom for the BX, the base exchange. That's where you go buy a new uniform, and this is where they store. This, this is the stock room. And before I made a total fool of myself, I caught myself midstream of a sentence in a question. What, is this the, and then I realized, I said, oh, Colonel, don't tell me, sir. Are these burial shrouds? He said, yes. He said, one day. There will be not a uniform left that you see now that will not have been filled by somebody who died that loved you, who loved me, who loved our descendants more than themselves. And I felt my knees weaken. I said, Colonel, this is it, isn't it? This is it, huh? To stand in this room 
with uniforms that are perfect, not a, not a shred of lint or dust or wrinkle, no stain, the flag that was being pressed for the next incoming valor on the table. He said, no, Dave, this is not it, but come. I'll take you there. And he took me across post to another place. It's called the Fisher House. Some of you have heard of it. The great industrialists during World War II thought the families of fallen heroes should be treated with respect. And from that day to this, the Fisher Family Foundation, if I'm calling it right or not, I don't know. I know it's the Fisher family, have provided many, many Fisher houses across the world. But there's one that's above all of them. And it's there at Dover to service the family members of the largest incoming of fallen heroes. I walked into a house that was the biggest mansion I've ever seen. Many bedrooms, everything appointed with furniture that you could smell the quality of leather and, and mahogany. And I just stood there and he said, here we give console and counseling I said, you, sir? He said, yes, that's part of my job. I said, then this is it. This is it, isn't it? He said, come here. I'll take you there. And we went to an anteroom off the chapel. And immediately, no one had to tell me where I was. The little panda bears were life-size. The Tonka toys. The Little games for children to play. It all overwhelmed me, but nothing overwhelmed me like the blackboard that was down at eye level high to a child instead of adult height. And even that didn't move me like what was written on that blackboard by a little girl to the mommy that would never hold her again. The incoming mommy that was yet to be processed at that mortuary. And this is what she wrote, and I have it on my phone as a picture I remind myself. Not only does the heroism apply to the fallen, but to those that remain, the mamas, the daddies, the spouses, the children. She wrote, my mom means the world to me. I almost fell when my legs felt so weak I could scarcely sustain myself. I said, okay, Colonel. This is the end of the tour, right? He said, there's another stop. I said, oh, please, Colonel, here. This is it, right? He said, not by a million miles, but I'll take you there. And he took me to the flight line. And it's there, the giant C-130 or C-5A, the largest, the largest aircraft in our arsenal. This time would not unload aircraft or aircraft parts or foodstuffs. This time it would unload what's called a transfer case, not yet called a coffin, until the body is prepared and it is given to the family to be taken for internment at their choice. He said, here's where we unload the airplane. Into the back of a waiting truck, a truck without a chip in the paint, 
the tires glisten, the wheels sparkle. No dust, no dirt. And there's a rope that separates the scene of the unloading of that transfer case from the aircraft to the truck. A rope that's big, fat, with big old hooks on either end suspended on what looks like golden stands, separating the family from what is about to be a train wreck. Because that train's coming out of the back of that, that aircraft and it's going to run smack over that family because for the first time, their eyes shall behold the return of the pride of their life in a box to be buried. I said, Colonel, no moss. No moss. We can't go any further down this road. He said, we're almost there. I'll show you. He said, sometimes we have a runner. I said, Colonel, what's a runner? He said, that's when Mama can't take it anymore. And she jumps that rope. And when that truck takes off down that street, headed for that table you didn't want to go see, to that room you respected, to that autopsy, to that mortuary, she takes off chasing that truck. Common sense doesn't matter. What's logical is out the window. Mama's chasing her truck because she just wants her baby back. And if you say, this is too much, this is too much emotion, then be the mama just once in your life. And you'll say, I have underplayed this moment. I have un underwhelmed us with reality. I said, what do you do, Colonel? He said, I jump the rope and I chase her. I said, what do you do when you catch her? He said, that's the worst part. I said, what do you say? He said, in 30 years of government service to my nation wearing this uniform, I have never been assigned a more difficult assignment than to hold the mother of a fallen warrior and have nothing that I can say to console her broken heart. Today, yes, I am a believer in Jesus Christ and it's the most important belief system in my existence. But running a close second, which does not mean first loser, Close second is my love of this great country. And you can accuse me of mixing my faith and my nation, but we are one nation under God. And there is a certain amount of coalescing of my commitment. And all I know to tell you is I'm chasing a truck today. Have you ever chased a truck? I chased a truck that brought me all the way to Estes Park. And it led me through a middle school with some of the finest folks I've ever addressed who've allowed me to sit in my moment of weakness I can't stand. And I try not to cry because I'm afraid I'd look ugly. You say you're chasing a truck, Dave? Yes. I'm chasing a truck called America. And in the back of that truck lie the remains of a nation I once knew when children could pray in school and Bully atheists were red-faced yelling, you can't do that, it's against the Constitution. 
when the Supreme Court's already ruled that a child does not leave their freedom at the schoolhouse gate when they walk on that campus, a child can still pray if they choose, carry their Bible if they choose, and nobody can take that away from them. We've bled and we've burned to preserve it. Don't give it up. Do you agree with me today? Let the children be themselves. So in all of my years, I have committed to the cross and to a flag. The cross will always be my statue of liberty. But I still love that flag. And I have a little three and a half minute video, I think it is. I'd love to show you to conclude my presentation. And David, if you're in charge of that, roll it. Thank you, my friend. 